silence of surveillance. This is a podcast about art, technology and politics in the new era of techno-polarity. Oh my god, I don't even know where to start. Um, There's so much to talk about. This is the second episode. The first was called Peter Thiel versus Ted K, The Vibe Shift. In it I laid out utterly incoherently, my meandering thesis for defining a new political era of techno-polarity, a pro-versus-anti-tech paradigm that does not break along traditional lines of left and right, and I placed Teal and Ted Kay as ciphers at the extremes of that axis, innovation and disruption, Peter Teal, versus freedom and revolution, Ted Kaczynski. These two men have nothing in common, okay, but they seem to be mentioned together a lot as contemporaries. Teal seemingly fond of directly inviting the comparison and the sexy association with violence in his statement, for example, that four of the seven PayPal mafia taught themselves how to build bombs in high school. And James Pogue, in his Vanity Fair article that I'm going to talk about today, also makes the association. But in my opinion, Peter Thiel and Ted Kaczynski are two natural enemies within the discourse of pro and anti-tech and represent positions that are fundamentally incompatible. So I ask in that first episode, whose side are you on? Um, The episode was inspired by Sean Fleming's 2021 essay, The Unabomber and the Origins of Anti-Tech Radicalism in which Sean refers to Ted Kay as the marks of anti-tech and predicts a broad-based incoming anti-tech movement in response to the rising power of the tech elite, the future of non-capitalism as neo-feudalism and the deterioration of democracy as the fundament of a set of foundational values in Western day-to-day life. Um, Gig economy workers, for example, are living... A neo-feudalist reality, not a democratic one. (laughs) Today, I want to expand the search for these neo-feudalist tendencies into the white-collar public sector and take a look at the attention economy, which is showing serious signs of fatigue and has been predicted by the likes of Tim Wong to be destined for collapse. I'll take a look at the trenchant new regulations on the part of China towards its own big data oligopolies, noting the political philosophy that separates European, American and Chinese approaches to big tech regulation right now. 
US approach being soft policy pro-market, in contrast to the staunch hierarchy of domination, state capitalist top-down approach by China, and the individual rights-based approach of Europe, known as the GDPR, um, a focus decided by the fact that Europe is not a big tech superpower, nor a center of innovation on the level of Beijing or Silicon Valley, although Ireland is a center for tax dodging on the part of big tech. Specifically, I'm asking what comes after the attention economy. Um, I'll be looking at Dean Kissick's most recent piece in his regular column for Spike magazine, The Downward Spiral, where he muses on the atomizing and disassociative effects of doom scrolling, total war in the age of surveillance capitalism. And I'll connect the politics of the attention economy to answer the question of what is coming next, citing Yanis Varoufakis' piece for the new Institute of Art and Ideas, cloud-based manufacturing infrastructure, command AI, and a further shift towards a profound fundamental inequality in the consolidation of power by the tech platform elite, one of whom, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, has been quietly monopolizing cloud technology for the last 20 years or so, with the aim of making every single business on earth dependent on his cloud services for its day-to-day operations. (laughs) So that's quite a lot. Uh, But first, James Pogue in Vanity Fair, Inside the New Right, where Peter Thiel is placing his biggest bets. The most interesting thing about this article, I thought, was James Pogue himself. Um, He appeared on a couple of podcasts to talk about the piece on WebBrain, who were clueless because they are essentially secularist trend hoppers who aren't raised right and don't really get it in the draconian cradle to grave sense of religious indoctrination and uh, he also appeared on the Vanity Fair podcast which was a little more rigorous but very boomer brained and not on it they kept on saying I had no idea (laughs) this is going on (laughs) Um, James himself is an attractive character um yeah, he's like fit. <laughs> His look is very nigh, you know, he's a man for our times, girl. You know what he looks like? He looks like a cross between Travis Bickle and Vincent Castle in La Haine. So I mean, that's hot. Um he's getting through to me. Um he disclosed that he was raised as a Calvinist. So yeah, this is fascinating to me. Fascinating. A Calvinist. Okay. What is a nice boy like this doing, hanging around with these gutter snipes of the new right? This boy is not like J.D. Vance, okay? This boy was raised right. His mother's not a drug addict, okay? His mother believes in predestination. Do you know what predestination is? It's the belief of the Reformed Church that God has predestined some people to eternal damnation even before their lives are lived, and thus there's not a single earthly fucking thing they can do to save their souls and enter the kingdom of God. Calvinists are hardcore. That's his people. He also says his parents were Leninists, strike-oriented, economically left-wing, socially conservative, generationally, culturally, which sets him apart and explains why he's not phased by national conservatism and its legions of pretenders because he knows 
that to live a life by those codes is incredibly difficult and most people can't walk that line. In most cases, there will be a degree of self-deception and an inevitable measure of a liberal sensibility present in these people's lives that diminishes the authenticity of their staunch positions from that of acolyte to mere aesthetic. For example, Peter Thiel himself is married to a man and has a child by surrogate. He claims to seek the downfall of the liberal order, but simultaneously loves to enjoy the successes wrought of liberal social policy advancement, as he should, but don't be a hypocrite about it. I suspect the mendacity of that is not lost on someone like James Pogue. Such a Protestant name, by the way. James Pogue? Curtis Yarvin could never. Also, he lives in a hinterland. Mr. James Pogue lives in a hinterland. Loves the Second Amendment. Was an anarchist as a teen. An ascetic, like an Ian Mackay type. And he's a cabin in the woods kind of guy. My kind of guy. I see you. <laughs> I see you. That's a little Lord of the Rings reference for you. Um, <clears throat> I enjoyed the article as much as everyone else. I think it was a timely piece. I don't like any of the characters featured in it, um, but it obviously worked for Hillbilly Arkeley, <laughs> J.D. Vance, who's been elected to the Senate for Ohio. But Blake Masters, it's a no from me. Like You know what he looks like? He really reminds me of Chloe in Fight Club. You know, Chloe, who's like hoarding lubricants in her bedpan and making inappropriate declarations of sexual deviance while dying of ascending bile cancer. <laughs> um, Blake Masters does not strike me as the type of person who is sincerely resisting a techno-consumerist utopia. He's a venture capitalist and president of the Teal Foundation, he doesn't care about working people. He's embedded like a tick in the intra-institutional power structure. The elite university pipeline that's a well-trodden path from Stanford University to the corner office of the ruling class. There is nothing radical nor iconoclastic about him, as Pete Burns would say, insincere to the point of nausea. Thus the pertinent question. <laughs> Why are they talking to Vanity Fair? Vanity Fair is the cathedral, right? Well, the answer's simple. So simple. They want to be famous for all their reactionary dark enlightenment posturing. They can't resist the slow, seductive spin of the newsfeed Lazy Susan and the patina and the glamour of the East Coast media disco Elysium. They love opening Vanity Fair magazine and reading their own names in print. We're toppling the liberal order right after this photo shoot with Annie Leibovitz. Oh, God. I'm not moved by this meagre vision of the future, which all said and done is nothing more than replacing one elite for another. So you're going to take away individual choice and say that nation is more important, tradition is more important, community is more important... But somebody somewhere is still making the choice, even if the individual is no longer doing it. And to have it be an autocratic Caesar figure is just a kinder, gentler Charlie Manson. And you know what they say, a kinder, gentler Charlie Manson is still fucking Charlie Manson. 
Uh, journalism as intelligence gathering is an interesting concept, but Peter Thiel owns Palantir. What's the difference between Taylor Lorenz using nefarious contacts in surveillance gathering via Twitter to dox libs of TikTok and Peter Thiel earning his first billion in government contracts by helping the CIA develop software to best exploit illegitimately gathered data on the public? Pogue does attempt to pinpoint what unites such a disparate cast of characters with seemingly no cohesive moral values or principles of their own, merely reactionaries who read as highly at odds with themselves more than anything else. Why is this new right happening? Um, James makes reference to a number of explanations, but the one that I would point to is the manufactured defeat of the Bernie campaign by the liberal democratic centrist hegemony and the fate of the residuum of that movement. The Bernie base was an intensive and sincere energy for change, and the demands, healthcare for all, a living wage, cancelling of student debt, regulation of big tech, and economic bill of rights, have never been reconciled. The purity of Bernie's enormous groundswell support was left with nowhere to resolve itself and the concomitant rage born of outcomes of the 2008 financial crisis was never atoned for. The democratic centrist mainstream performed a strategic undermining and dismantling of what was one of the first naturally coalescing grassroots progressive movements, not just for social policy but for economic policy in the US since perhaps the Battle of Blair Mountain Labour Uprising in 1921. With nowhere to go, it has retreated back into its resentment, its cynicism, has been polluted by corporate progressivism and the monetization of virtue via emerging identitarianism, bereft of class con consciousness, and gleefully referred to by the right as woke capitalism, and now manifests as a right-wing reactionary shadow that's ultimately ineffectual and utterly fucking useless. I am not seduced by the NRX thing at all. If they could charismatically describe the problem, which they cannot, their prescriptions lack vision. Pogue defines it as Roosevelt crossed with the Prussian military. Roosevelt, of course, leading not with the great man theory, but the practical circumstance of a country in crisis and in war in urgent need of decisive leadership, yielding an unprecedented four consecutive terms in office. And then the Prussian army, um, historically the Prussian army um, is, I guess, credited as the basis of German political development. Um, Prussian rulers, and this is from an essay that I, I find online, what became of the Prussian army. Prussian rulers developed a structure which based the new institutional concepts of centralization, sovereign government, and primacy of the state upon the traditions of feudal chivalry and upon the mutual personal loyalty between king and officer. This personal bond supplied the unity which Prussia could find neither in national consciousness nor in territorial cohesion. There's no contiguous Prussian border, or there was no contiguous Prussian border. It's very nature and tradition. This basis of unity forced uh, Prussia to organize the new state in the form of an army. But while the emotional foundation was intentionally medieval in character, the, the mechanical organization of this army state was modeled consciously, according to some records, after the most successful and most blatantly modern of the institutions of New Europe, the Jesuit order. 
and there was none of the old patrimonial and feudal substance left in the new state despite all its appeal to the emotional values and personal relationships of the good old times. Above all, it had none of the feudal structure of medieval society. Nothing's further from the truth than to see in the Prussian army officer a nobleman just because, just because he has a von in his name. The Junkers have always been a middle class, economically, socially, and especially in mentality. Their virtues, thrift, sobriety, industry, obedience to duty, and a longing for domestic bliss were those of the rising middle classes, and so were their faults, narrow-mindedness, smug righteousness, and lack of imagination. I don't find the descriptive arguments of Yarvin and the like compelling the lexicon that Yarvin developed, the cathedral, the regime, the matrix, the imagery's dry and boring to me. And the references are strangely anodyne. I know the red pill one took off, but that's because it was a reference germane to his incipient audience. It was a midwit pop cultural reference. Camille Paglia reached for the Thonian gods, and that's because she has more intellectual pedigree, cut and dry, and she's a far superior writer. Yarvin's more like an outsider artist, you know, he's the Jandek of the online right. And the sad thing is, there are millions of Yarvins out there, furiously tabbity-tabbing, low-velocity screeds and the beady eyes and the onion-odored crotches, absorbing information about the Jacobites or the Phoenicians or the Barbary Coast and projecting themselves and their own inadequacies onto these grandiose histories. Anything to explain why they're not responsible for their own unhappiness. Look what they took from you. That meme, that meme shows all the things you can't do in a techno-consumerist future. You can't go to the roller rink. You can't work on the engine of your old Chevy pickup. You can't shoot a gun. René Girard said, uh, you need a scapegoat to restore society. Yeah, and that scapegoat is going to be these young, reactionary, new right-wingers who'll swallow all this misguided nonsense whole and waste the best years of their lives pretending it's 1956 again. Don't give these fucking dullards your 20s. Demolish the liberal order? Hmm. Right. The prescription is ultimately to defeat one elite and swap it out for another and kill surprise. These guys position themselves out front at the promontory of this techno-futurist elite. They make no secret of this and are instead nauseatingly hubristic about their goal. The minority elites get to roam the real world and feel the rain and disrupt and innovate and imagine, while the feudal serfs get to live in the pod, fully immersed in VR, perhaps performing the function of a post-scarcity day trader, pressing a button to buy or sell market stocks, eating food delivered via drone and communicating with others only as a functionary of the network state. As Orwell described it, society will be hierarchical with an aristocracy of, parentheses mine, self-proclaimed talent at the top and a mass of semi-slaves at the bottom. This is the neo-feudalist post-democratic future they talk about. And if you buy into this, I'm sorry, you're a fucking idiot. Never. I will never. Not Crystal Darling. Not her. <laughs> Two things. No one's really examined the ubiquity of the savant online faux intellectual as a mass phenomenon. This, I think, is a mass trend that hasn't been properly acknowledged yet. There isn't one Curtis Yarvin. There's millions. We're all Curtis Yarvin. <laughs> Anyone want to talk about Heinz Guderian for three hours, girl? Okay, let's go. 
Um, this is nothing to do with free speech or iconoclastic apostate voices being misinterpreted and depressed. I really challenge that narrative, although it seems no one, no one else is prepared to do the same. It's now just accepted discourse that the right has a legitimate beef on the suppression of free speech online. This has always seemed totally nonsensical to me because when you participate in the opinion sharing via platform, again, radical indifference and the omnipotence of the data supply chain means that it's not free and it's not speech. You're training an algorithm, nothing more. Your labor is being extracted and you're making money for a tech platform owner. That is the only real outcome of your participation. When you're pilling yourself on YouTube videos of obscure histories, you have to remember millions of other people are doing the same thing now, so it doesn't necessarily follow that you're an intellectual heavyweight. The bar's been lowered. The barrier to entry into the intellectual superstrata used to be high because finding things out used to be the preserve of the kind of person who could afford to receive monthly shipments of books from Europe's centres of intellectual vanguardism like Desacientes in Against Nature or Newland Archer in The Age of Innocence. It used to be a consequence of privilege because you had to be a gentleman to have the time to read I went to the Sir John Stone House in London recently and I saw the spurgy, labyrinthine layout with all the various oubliettes and sarcophagi and I found it to be a real-world physical rendering of the average dark enlightenment adjacent internet flaneurs downloads folder. Sir John Stone, however, he had a pedigree. He really was an architect. You can scan a couple of blog posts and watch a few YouTube video essays and Now suddenly you're pilled and ready to declare yourself an expert on COVID, on Palestine, on Roe v. Wade, on Hannibal Barca crossing the Alps, on Caesar crossing the Rubicon, on Jefferson and Eaton slaying the Battle of Derna to the whores of Tripoli girl. (laughs) A ruling class education still speaks to a certain pedigree, but no one's really acknowledging that these multitudinous new voices cannot measure against that lineage. Old white men ain't what they used to be. (laughs) James Galbraith, who I'm going to reference later on when we discuss the attention economy, he said, the modern conservative is engaged in one of man's oldest exercises in moral philosophy, that is, a search for a superior moral justification for selfishness. Do not call these grifters new intellectuals or prophets. Yarvin is not a prophet. He's just another rart sitting in front of a computer, just like me, honey, and just like you. What I would want to see and what I really yearn for from James Pogue, who's probably listening because he has been name-searching himself to see what people are saying about his article, um, what I would like to see is a shift in terminology from that of traditional partisan politics to one of technopolarity, The reason why it's so hard to parse the new right in relation to these issues is because it's not a paradigm of left versus right, of liberal versus conservative. It's pro-tech versus anti-tech. This is techno-conservatism versus techno-progressivism. Techno-skepticism versus techno-utopianism. Transhumanism versus neo-vitalism. Digital aristocracy versus techno-economic mass equality. 
and it's truly a politics of the future. So that's what I thought of that fucking article. Anyway, nigh. Next, Dean Kissick. Okay, Dean's monthly column in Spike, The Downward Spiral. I'm sure if you're into art at all, you read The Downward Spiral. I always enjoy it. Never miss it, honey. Never miss it. So I feel like totally in sync with Dean, you know, because he referenced Goya in this piece. And I've been thinking about Goya a lot recently um, in relation to the revelations concerning Clearview AI and their involvement in psychological warfare on behalf of the Ukrainian government against Russia. Um, I'll, I'll make this clear you know, as we speak, but Clearview AI, New York-based, um, I guess, surveillance gathering company, um, they've been mired in various degrees of litigation all over the world right now concerning their practice of illegally scraping data for use in the development of their algorithms. They just lost a case in Chicago, I believe, but um, meanwhile, they're not worrying about it at all because <laughs> what they've been doing is donating their facial recognition software to Ukraine, who've been using it to identify the dead bodies of Russian soldiers and are then forwarding messages to the soldiers' mothers over social media with images of the deceased young men's bodies. Uh, Dean's piece about his experience of the Ukraine war is, um, well, he says that War, I mean, I don't I thought this was kind of trite. He says war feels unreal when mediated through the tiny content delivery system of the phone screen. He describes the derealization of experiencing war through the content cycle delivered via the attention economy whilst lying on your modular sofa in your downtown apartment. Um, I thought this was a weak and frankly silly take. And I really like Dean. You know, he's a fellow whisper queen. Um, firstly, well, it made me go back and listen to Salem, Bury My Heart in a Wounded Knee mix. Um, and as I recall, there were videos for that mix with leaked thermal imaging footage of the Iraq war under the music. I can't find them now. Um, this was around the time of the 2007 US military helicopter strike that killed around a dozen Iraqi civilians and two Reuters staff in Baghdad. And it was posted by WikiLeaks and confirmed by army officials as authentic. Baudrillard's famous essay that Dean cites in this piece, an essay they make you read in art college, along with Illuminations by Benjamin and John Berger's Ways of Seeing and Metamorphoses by Kafka. Um, that Baudrillard essay stopped mattering to me after WikiLeaks because the simulacra were no longer merely a propaganda device and took on another layer of sophistication when the images became evidentiary totems in the revelatory disclosure of the existence of mass surveillance and war crimes. Um, here's a quick redux of that Baudrillard essay from Wikipedia. Baudrillard argued the Gulf War was not really a war, but rather an atrocity which masqueraded as a war. Using overwhelming air power, the American military, for the most part, did not directly engage in combat with the Iraqi army and suffered few casualties. Almost nothing was made known about Iraqi deaths, thus the fighting did not really take place from the point of view of the West. Moreover, all that spectators got to know about the war was in the form of propaganda imagery, 
The closely watched media presentations made it impossible to distinguish between the experience of what truly happened in the conflict and its stylized, selective misrepresentation through simulacra. To me, there's not a lot of similarity with what's going on in Ukraine, and here's why. The Ukraine war is not not taking place. Just because it's proxied through your phone does not mean it's distanced from you because in the age of surveillance capitalism, your participation via the data supply chain is an intrinsic part of war. War is just another incidental content stream, but at the same time, the phone itself is used as a weapon. Connectivity itself is a weapon of war. I underscore this with an article that appeared in Washington Post and Reuters, The Guardian, as well as Privacy International. Um, Ukraine uses facial recognition software to identify Russians killed in combat. And I've got um, some quotes for you here that I'll read. Uh, Oh, God. Ukraine is using facial recognition software to help identify the bodies of Russian soldiers killed in combat and track down their families to inform them of their deaths, Ukraine's vice prime minister told the Reuters news service. Uh, Mikhailo Fedorov, Ukraine's vice prime minister, who also runs the Ministry of Digital Transformation, told Reuters his country had been using software facial recognition provider Clearview AI to find the social media accounts of dead Russian soldiers, and I quote, as a courtesy to the mothers of those soldiers, we are disseminating this information over social media to let families know that they've lost their sons and to enable them to come and collect bodies. Clearview offered its service free of charge to Ukraine after the Russian invasion and has said its search engine includes more than 2 billion images from VContact, the popular Russian social media service. No comment from VContact, because they're the platform and they're radically indifferent. Just this month, Italy fined Clearview 20 million euro for violating EU consumer privacy laws and ordered the company to delete all its data on Italian residents. Both the UK Information Commissioner Office and authorities in France demanded that Clearview AI stop processing all user data. The company is also battling a lawsuit in US federal court in Chicago, filed by consumers under the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. Now, they have, uh, as far as I know, Clearview AI have lost that case. Uh, Fedorov said Ukraine, (laughs) this is really telling, Fedorov said Ukraine was not using the technology to identify its own troops killed in battle. He didn't specify why. The reason is because this is psychological warfare. This is not an identification tool. Um, I think that's a big tale. Um, In addition to concerns about reliability and breaches of privacy, there are also questions about what Clearview AI will do with the data it collects, including the photos of battlefield casualties. Clearview said in a statement, it is ensuring each person with access to the tool is trained on how to use it safely and responsibly. War zones, however, can be dangerous when there is no way to tell apart enemy combatants from civilians. 
Facial recognition technology can help reduce uncertainty and increase safety in these situations, the company says. It added that some tests have shown the software is bias-free and can pick out the correct face from a lineup of over 12 million photos at an accuracy rate of 99.85%. Um, that's utterly risable. I mean, I can't believe they feel compelled to mention that the technology is bias-free because we know facial recognition software has the reputation of being racist because the algorithm struggles to discern between faces of people of colour. But it really is a diversity drone strike meme because who the fuck cares if the software is bias-free when it's being used to traumatise mothers? Imagine you get up one morning to find a message on your social saying your son's dead and here's a picture of his mutilated body. It's obscene. Um, a Kremlin spokesperson told Reuters that Moscow has no knowledge of Ukraine's use of Clearview software. There are too many fakes coming out of Ukraine, the spokesperson said. What a stupid response from Russia. Like, they can't even openly condemn it, lest it signal a concession to some sort of psyop win on the part of Ukraine. On the issue of expropriating value of labour, back in the day, you'd take a nickel out of your pocket and you'd pay for a newspaper and the headline would read, oh, the humanity, and you'd look at pictures of a flaming blimp. You'd say a few prayers, but for the grace of God, etc., etc., and be on your way. Now it's different, because when you lie on your modular sofa and scroll through the murder ballads on Telegram, you're not merely participating in a single transaction, you're working. Your labour's being extracted, because every click and every scroll is training the algorithm on how best to hold your attention and appropriate more of your time, so more data can be collected, and so on and so on. Yanis Varoufakis calls this infinite regress. The tech platforms are indifferent to what information you're consuming. All they care about is that you keep reacting, keep clicking, keep scrolling. So whether you're slitting a throat on live stream or watching a throat be slit, the outcome is the same. The algorithm gets stronger and the tech oligopolies get richer. The data supply chain maintains its motivation to profit even in the midst of the darkest aspects of conflict. And your participation is intrinsic to that. Welcome to total war in the age of surveillance capitalism. Let's talk about psychological warfare and Goya. So Ukrainian soldiers traumatise these mothers, the mothers of the dead, and commandeer the fallen soldiers' phones and taunt the mothers over social media. This is the modern equivalent of a disasters of war etching. This is great deeds against the dead. Now when Invasion happens in the manner of Russia entering Ukraine. Circumstances can well be predicted to deteriorate into guerrilla warfare. Improvisational tactics are employed and God help us, anything goes. That's the awful truth. In like a, a very famous example, Stalingrad, you know, the battle was not just fought street by street, but by the end, room by room. This is a grotesque new low and the involvement of Clearview AI is utterly condemnable. When I happen across violent or graphic imagery online, specifically images of death, okay, and it sometimes happens without you necessarily seeking it out, I always say a wee prayer, always say to myself, great deeds against the dead. I say it three times. 
The violation of a human body after death by transforming a once living person into fodder for a data supply chain is, in my opinion, as bad as dismemberment. Death is private. The passing of human life is not for sale. Even in the most brutal wars, the dead are eventually given the honours of burial, and only in the most regressive, atavistic societies are living people brutalised by repeated exposure to death without commensurate respects. The Goya etching represents three bodies dismembered and hung from a tree. It's a profound and terrifying anti-war statement by a master of the art form. Goya was deeply conflicted about the events of the Peninsular War and its consequences for Spain, thus the ironic and often satirical titles, Great Deeds Against the Dead. I've always loved that title, the perversity and the poetry of it. Great Deeds Against the Dead. The metre is so perfect, even in the English. The images depict extreme cruelty, horror, hopelessness, the reality of war. But the difference is, you regard a Goya etching, you contemplate it somewhere in the stillness of your soul, whereas you consume a shelling video on Telegram and you provide your labour for free to a trillion dollar economic structure headed by a billionaire elite of ten or so people who are indifferent to your suffering, your confusion, your disassociation, your zany, arty feelings about it all, and indifferent to the suffering of the fellow human dead or dying in the video. Great deeds against the dead. The extraction of labour and the transfer into profit is ongoing, even in death. Don't allow it. When you participate in this grotesque supply chain, you are complicit. There's no dislocation of responsibility. Quite the opposite. You need to assert a moral response. Don't watch it. Which brings us to the politics of attention. So I was thinking about um, Jacques Ellul, you know, like from the first episode I was talking about what uh, Ted Kaczynski took from Jacques Ellul, that humans are maladapted to life in a technological society. But Ellul was opposed to violent resistance. Instead, he focused his philosophy on the spiritual consolation um, and was, well, was a Christian. Um, his advice, perhaps, would be, you know, choose to be discerning about where you invest your time online. Be conscious of the fact that all the platforms you frequent are trying to hold you there for as long as possible and just don't let them do it. You don't need to call it activism. It's just something you can do for yourself and for each other. So the end of the attention economy. What comes next? Um, I kind of hung the, these thoughts on this uh, piece by Yanis Varoufakis for the Institute of Art and Ideas. It's a piece that is paywalled. It's called Cloudalists Are Taking Over Capitalism. Um, I was not able to watch all of it, but it doesn't matter because I kind of know what he's going to say in it because I've been thinking exactly the same thing. So we know what the attention economy is. Instead of paying for an online service, we exchange our attention for access to the service, but... Because attention is not vertical, what has come to bear out over 20 years of this model is an explosion of content without expansion of market, the finitude of human attention. Three interesting signs of change from the last few months. Number one, 
Netflix shares drop 39%. Netflix stock has suffered this year as the pandemic era surge in user signups faded and the, investor, the investors turned away from high value technology and growth stocks due to rising bond yields. Netflix is in the bowels of the attention economy. Number two, Peter Thiel exiting Facebook and Facebook confronting the market consequences of Apple's ATT and Google's privacy sandbox. In February, the Facebook share price dropped 45% from the previous year's highs. Thiel responded by saying he's not going to be on the board anymore. He's already exited his position in terms of selling his stock and the PR line from Zuckerberg has been that this is all expected because Teal never intended to stick around forever, which I think is massive ex-girlfriend cope, to be fair. Um, three, and this is huge, the China tech crackdown. Major regulations introduced in March this year, rolling out under the heading Internet Information Service Algorithmic Recommendation Management Provision. Wow. A fully comprehensive set of strictures, including banning young children from streaming services, for example. It really feels like Chi has read The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff, because he's ready to shut it down, girl. Like He wants to curtail unmitigated and irrational growth um, because it threatens to supersede the reach of the state. The podcast This Machine Kills have just uploaded an episode on this and um, they they were struck by the same thing that I was, whereas, you know, Shoshana calls surveillance capitalism a direct threat to democracy. In China, it's a threat to the autocratic power of the state. And I've got a couple of uh, quotes from, from Bloomberg about it. So... Um, yeah. Why China keeps on targeting its technology giants, the quick take, the Bloomberg quick take. Um, interestingly, 1.5 trillion has been wiped out of the market value last year alone. And the blows keep coming. So maintaining social stability is a signature goal of Xi and the ruling Communist Party. So any company or person that it perceives as threatening can find themselves in the crosshairs. Um, the speed of change has been dizzying. Rules issued in 2021 to curb monopolistic practices were drafted and finalised in just three months. The crackdowns include... Uh, Chinese authorities told the nation's biggest state-owned firms and banks in February to check their financial exposure and other links to Ant Group Company, renewing scrutiny of billionaire Jack Ma's financial empire. Ant, which was about to go public before being stopped by regulators, agreed last year to turn itself into a financial holdings company, making it subject to capital requirements similar to those for banks. Alibaba, which owns a third of Ant, was hit in 2021 with a record 2.8 billion antitrust fine and was told to change its business practices. It and some two dozen other tech firms were also ordered to carry out internal inspections and address issues such as data scrutiny. Uh, the top state economic planner on February 18th demanded that uh, Meituan and its peers lower the fees 
they charge restaurants in pandemic-hit regions. The antitrust watchdog has already ordered them to ensure that delivery workers are at least earning a minimum wage. Uh, Didi's June 2021 listing in New York is being unwound under pressure from Chinese authorities. It also faces the prospect of massive penalties. And Tencent, the operator of WeChat Super App, was ordered to give up exclusive music streaming rights. The tutoring sector, where companies such as Tal Education Group have garnered multi-billion dollar valuations, saw its future redefined in one sweeping order that banned them from making profits via some of their most lucrative businesses or raising capital and limited what they can teach. Um, it's clear that the Communist Party had been growing increasingly concerned about the clout of internet firms, which are mostly private entities over which it has little direct control. Much of that concern centres around their grip on the hordes of data that they vacuum up from hundreds of millions of users, considered the key to driving the country's economic and geopolitical goals, as well as shoring up the party's power base. One person whose opinion on this I can't wait to read is Moira Weigel. She's a professor at Northeastern University and she's one of my favourite writers on tech. She shared a recent uh, Twitter thread, some interesting points in it here. China's new policy restricting minors from participating in live streaming. Super interesting. Here's what stands out. The rules forbid apps from using some of the UI interface reward mechanisms that entice young users to tip influencers. First, some background. While the US internet rules tend to focus on protecting kids from cyberbullying and sexual predators, China's rules historically focus on more heavily preventing internet addiction in kids. Broadly speaking, big dangers are perceived to be kids neglecting their studies or becoming unfilial because of internet obsession, learning bad habits online and spending their parents' savings on games or other frivolous digital products. She had, but yes. Um, <laughs> why? That's why the new rules approach both watching and hosting live streams as a danger to children. The thinking is that it's addictive, it encourages look-at-me child celebrity culture, and it incentivizes kids to spend big on their favorite KOLs. Uh, the new rules ban kids from participating in tipping and gifting, ban minors under the age of 16 from hosting live streams, and minors between 16 and 18 need parental consent to host, but that's not the most interesting bit. China's new rules forbid platforms from designing exaggerated visuals and special effects that trigger on screen whenever an influencer is given a gift. Um, if you've ever seen this, I'm, you, I'm sure you know, you know, like a little avatar appears and, you know, there's glitter everywhere and like, oh, and all those happy noises and stuff like that. Um, the rules also forbid live streaming platforms from designing UIs that rank KOLs by the amount of income they've earned. The idea being that this both glorifies money and encourages kids to spend big to push their favourite celebs up the list. Here's the thing, though. Those reward mechanisms work just as well on adult users as they do on children, and there's a very real possibility that these rules contribute to reducing gifting across the board. We don't know exactly how much of platform income originates from gifting, but some estimates put it as high as 20% for ByteDance. 
In any case, it's fascinating to watch Chinese regulators treat live stream gifting animations like the US regulators treated Joe Camel, a colourful inducement that tempts children to engage with a dangerous and addictive product. Yeah. Um, this is, it's just fascinating to, to contrast the different uh, countries' regulators' responses to big data. Um, America is, you know, very much free market, you know, taking the guardrails off, just letting letting things happen. And I guess China's putting the foot down, China's parent in the room. Um, Tim Wang's book on the subprime attention economy came out a few years ago and predicted a crash. Adam Curtis said in, I think it was in uh, Can't Get You Out of My Head, that data isn't worth as much as the platforms say it is and that people are not as easily led as the conspiracy theorists would have us believe. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's that simple. Um, Yanis's piece talks about the evolution of command AI. Um, the example that I've been looking at is cloud-based solutioning and a new focus on cloud-based enterprise resource planning. Palantir and Amazon already use this model, and it supersedes the vulnerabilities of the attention economy's risks and downside. Um, Palantir, as you know, sells technology that interprets, organizes, and analyzes data. They sell it to the American government, amongst others. An enterprise resource planning system is a program that runs on a third-party vendor's cloud as opposed to an on-premises network, and businesses can run their entire show on it. It integrates and automates essential function from top to bottom, financial, operational, inventory orders, uh, supply chain management, even customer relations, procurement, production, distribution, and fulfillment. This means the third-party vendor stores and owns all the data related to the business and can analyze that and make product out of it in a closed loop of product development because they can see exactly where you need tools to improve your business. So will businesses take this bait? Well, yes. I mean, firstly, businesses won't need a software licensing fee anymore. Just like in the attention economy, the product is quote unquote free. The businesses pay with the data generated from their participation, training the algorithms and expanding the cloud vendor's power and reach. Real-time inventory insights and automated function means that human teams are going to be freed up to respond to more important jobs and concentrate on performance while AI does all the shit work and the white-collar low-end data entry jobs will be consigned to obsolescence. So what does this mean for neo-feudalism and the cloud? Yanis Varoufakis, in the piece that he made for the Institute of Art and Ideas, it's called Cloudalists Are Taking Over Capitalism. It's a rather clumsy neologism there, but it's an excellent analysis, and I'll attempt to abbreviate it here and pull this all together. Um, he says, the rise of the conglomerates after the Second World War, which economist James Galbraith called the techno-structure, Manufacturing things was no longer enough. Manufacturing had become so efficient that manufacturing commodities had to go hand in hand with manufacturing desire for commodities. 
So, advertising was there to convince people to want things beyond the satisfaction of their basic needs. The internet changed this. It allowed for the creation of person-specific targeting within the algorithm. The first algorithms would simply make recommendations, but at some point they ceased to be passive and began to react to the outcomes of their own actions, affecting themselves and the people who were affected by them. It was no longer humans controlling desires, but AI. And now AI will supplant the white-collar service industry jobs in a cloud-based network that we are training several billion times a second every time we use our devices, exactly what Dean Kissick is doing scrolling through the Ukraine horror videos on his phone, where the more he sees what engages him, the more he scrolls and the more the algorithm learns about him, the more exacting its influence over him becomes and on and on in infinite regress. I'm trying to teach my algorithm to teach me how to demystify and defeat the algorithm. <laughs> um, Michelle de Certeau in The Practice of Everyday Life, he's like a left-wing theorist. Um, he called this a tricky tactic and, you know, it's a form of rebellion. But if individual human attention cannot go vertical, where can the system seek out new infinite demand? Back to the techno structure. The manufacturers, from the smallest celebrity jewellery venture to the biggest car manufacturer, all can have their operations transferred to the cloud, and whoever owns the cloud holds the power. The owners of this new power are able to command huge numbers of us to do the things that are of the financial benefit to the cloud vendor. Cloud-based systems owners can extract huge rents from other capitalists, the manufacturers, to use this service. The cloud owners, they don't make anything, but they own the marketplace. They run the platforms that, that uh, are the architecture of the attention economy. So they create endless desire for stuff, and they own the tools to enable business to be conducted. They have turned conventional capitalists, says Yanis, into a new vassal class, a new strata of serfs. What this means is that a micro-elite, literally a handful of people, are currently consolidating their positions as the most powerful individuals in the history of the human race in terms of their ownership of crucial data, infrastructure and logistics provisions, the new tools for everyday life, as more and more of our existence is subsumed into the cloud and the inevitability of a cloud future manifests and the exigent propitiations of the crypto cultists and Web3 jingoists will submission and conjure a new reality that most of us are having no say in whatsoever. Jeff Bezos at Amazon, while everyone else was digging for gold, he was selling the shovels. When people become fully conscious of this encroachment and awareness reaches critical mass, I think the question's going to be, will we go quietly into that good pod or will we refuse and resist? Number one, you don't know me. And number two, you don't know me like that. <laughs>